of your marriage, the, the function of it is going to affect everything about how you live, your joy, your happiness, your satisfaction, or your lack thereof. They will all be connected to your marriage. So that is why we need to have a healthy marriage. And so we are uh, discussing that in this series. The Bible speaks much about marriage and uh, these principles we're going to uh, cover each week, they are all biblically founded principles. This morning, we're going to discuss righteousness. Righteousness must reign in the home. If you want to have a healthy marriage, righteousness must reign in the home. Go ahead and read our text, Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Okay, in this text, it uses the word nation, but that same word is also translated a house or a people. Uh, and in Bible language, that is uh, language or terminologies used to describe families. You would say, you've read about the house of David. That's literally his home, his family or his home. And so the point is, is that these ideas apply to the home. Righteousness exalts a home, but sin is a reproach to it. So righteousness must reign in the home is the principle we're going to discuss this morning. First, we need to talk about pollution in the marriage or pollution in the home. A very common mistake people make is that they separate righteousness from the home. Some Christians, uh, in my experience, they expend all of their effort to live right or to do right. They, they, they put all that effort into public behavior or in the church or maybe even on the job and they forget the home. They try very hard to do right when they're out in public, but they kind of forget about it in the home. Of course, we are comfortable at home. We let our guard down at home. And so sometimes righteousness pays the price in the home. Now, of course, for some, this is intentional. There are some people, of course, they put on a front or an act of righteousness when they are in public, this is, this is all an act. There's no uh, foundational reality to it. And of course, that's true, but that's probably rare. I would presume most people that are at a 9 o'clock Bible study on Sunday morning, it's not because you are pretending to be righteous. I think that you genuinely love God. But for most of us, it is unintentional. I don't believe that most Christians are evil, that they're trying to live these dual lives. Uh, uh, but the point is, is that many Christians are simply not careful regarding private righteousness. For many people, the decision-making process simply works different when they're at home. When you are at church, right, if someone bumps into you or someone spills coffee on your shoes, you go, oh, bless the Lord, you know, golly gee, what an unfortunate, you know, the devil is really attacking me today, but we maybe don't exercise the same amount of restraint in the home, 
right? Your decision-making process is different. Uh, there are people that you permit things in your home that you would not permit publicly. You permit yourself or your spouse or your children to behave differently in the home. You embrace attitudes or behaviors or mindsets in the home that you wouldn't in the church or in public. So this is true, but sometimes families use the home to hide sin intentionally. Acts 5 verses 1 through 4. But a certain, certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the, of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, this whole story is a fascinating study uh, in the human personality. What's interesting is some people misunderstand what happened in the scripture. Some people think that they stole money or that they weren't paying their tithe or something. None of that is true. Everything that they did with their money was righteous. It was their land and they sold it, whatever. It's their money. But what they did was, is they came, when they sold the land, they came and gave probably a large portion of money to the church, which is wonderful. That, that's amazing. But they were actually lying. They said, oh, we sold the land and we gave all the money to the church. They didn't give all the money, which is fine. You don't have to give all your money to the church. That's never asked in the Bible. It was never asked of them, but they were just lying to make it seem like they were more righteous than they really were. It's interesting is how often I've seen that, and we won't really deal with that. That's another study altogether, but it's interesting how often people mess themselves up trying to seem more righteous than they really are. But here's, uh, and I, I'm using this story for a very simple reason, and that is that Sometimes families hide sin within the home. Number one, sometimes couples hide their sin together. Acts 5, verse 9. And Peter said, How could the two of you think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The husband and the wife they made a conspiracy together to do something wrong. They agreed together. Listen, here's what we're going to do. No one at church is ever going to know, right? And that's probably never happened in South Africa, but just play along, you know. I'm an American. We do those evil things, but nobody here does those kind of things, right? What I have seen in ministry is often couples, a husband and wife, they will compromise together. See, when you get married, here's the dilemma for some people is now you have another Christian in the home holding you accountable. When you're at church, you say, oh, I'm this and I'm that and the other thing. And then you get home and your wife looks at you and realizes you are actually not all you say that you are. And so this creates a crisis or a dilemma. And so there are some couples, they conspire together to compromise together. Whether it's spoken or not, there comes to be an agreement about sin or disobedience. There is a 
couple that I knew well, very early in their marriage, these two, uh, they compromised their ministry standards. They were involved in ministry. If you have been in our church for a while, you know in public ministry we have standards. They compromised their standards together. No one else knew. This was their hush-hush secret. But this went on to create absolute crisis in their life and in their ministry for years. Their marriage was total chaos because they were hiding sin together. So I, I see couples like this. Rather than building each other up in righteousness, rather than challenging the other to live better or to be a greater uh, representation of Christ, the marriage becomes a den of secrets, a den of lies where they are hiding their sin. So that's number one. But number two, probably even more common, is there are families that uh, they hide this sin of their children. 2 Samuel 13, verse 21. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Now this is a long story. I won't, I won't go into all the details. But one of David's sons had committed an unspeakable moral violation. Vile, disgusting. Uh, he raped one of his sisters. This is beyond, this is, this is far, this isn't like, you know, Johnny uh, stole some uh, sweets from Shaheem's. This is a deep violation. It says, David heard all these things and he was very angry. Good, you should be. And then what? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing about it. And if you read the whole story through all the chapters and changes, you get the impression David probably, he didn't know what to do, Right? And I, I appreciate that. In a situation like that, I can understand being confused and not knowing exactly what to do at the moment. But in his not knowing what to do, he just decided to do nothing and hope it goes away, which is what a lot of parents do. You know, when your kids are little, when, you know, when they're just little ankle biters and the worst thing that they can do is, you know, make a mess in their pants, it's hard to imagine that they can be sinners, Right? But trust me, trust me, your kids can sin. And you will discover this. And most parents discover this, and it horrifies them when it first happens. Listen, I, as long as I've had kids since they were little, uh, I would say, hey, they're sinners, they need to get saved. And I, I would have people tell me, oh, don't say that about your kids, right? I knew that up here, but I want to tell you, the first time I had to deal with my kids in sin, it was a shocking thing. And so... The instinct is to, you know, you blink twice and think, you know what, uh, you know, better luck next week. And we just move on and hope nothing ever happens. Very common. As a pastor, I've had to deal with this, that as children age, the parents get protective. They cover for their children's sin, right? They hide their sin or they make excuses for their sin. Very often, parents are unwilling to let the pastor bring correction to their children. They resist that. They're opposed to anyone else bringing correction. Really, probably what it boils down to is the parent is saying, heck, I don't discipline my kids. Why would I let you? But that's probably a whole different lesson altogether. So, Oh, man, no one even laughed at that one. Dang. I'm going to have to do another parenting lesson soon. I can feel it. And so, of course, there's, there's practical reasons for this. We don't want to be embarrassed. 
We're afraid our children are going to bring shame on the family name if, it, if their sin gets exposed. But listen, if you hide your children's sin, take it from someone with experience, you are cursing your children. You are cursing your children. As a young man, I used to pastor, and he had gotten involved in sin. He was uh, maybe 18 or 19 at the time. Um, got involved in sin, uh, finally was exposed. So I call him in and I, I challenge, he confesses everything. Yes, it's all true. All these things happened. Uh, and he was still living with his parents. And so I had to put him out of the church. Said, Listen, bro, I'm gonna have to put you out for six months. You know, if you get your heart right, you do well, you can come back. So then uh, he goes and I call in mom and dad. And listen, I was very naive. At this point in my life, I'm imagining these poor parents, you know, I'm going to have to bring to them this terrible news. Mom is going to be crying. Oh, my gosh, he did what? Right. And so I start telling, listen, very unfortunate. You know, this thing happened. Right. And they're shocked. And I said, and I, and I talked to your son. He, he, very, he validated, yes, these things are all true. Yes. And, uh, and the father gets more shocked, but the mother doesn't. She starts to get like icy, you know. And so I'm kind of telling, you know, and I'm going to have to put him out of church. And the dad's like, oh, my gosh, right? And the mom's, you know, giving me one of those, you know. And I'm, I'm you know, when I'm talking, listen, I've, there's always two processes going on. There's always what I'm saying. But then there's in back here, what the heck? Right? Sometimes even when I'm preaching, I'll be preaching. And people are like, what is going on? And so I'm talking, and, I, and I'm, I'm having this dialogue with myself. What? And then I realize the dad has no idea. He is shocked by his son's sin, but the mom knows everything. I realize that because she's just, you know, she's got the icy cold, you know. And so finally, you know, as I I end, you know, and I'm like, so, uh, you know, and and the dad is like, I just can't believe it. And so quickly before, you know, the cat's out of the bag, I turn to the mom and I just say, how long have you known? And then the dad's like, right, you know, And, and she's like, well, I knew when it happened because I had to put him out for fornication. It was happening in the house with the mother's approval. And in her, her idea was, well, it's better that it's here than somewhere else. Right. And so afterward, and so, so then I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell your husband? Well, afterwards, I spoke to them and, you know, uh, I told them you really shouldn't be doing this. And so uh, we handled this in-house. Those were her words. We handled it in-house. So how did you handle it in-house? Well, I challenged him about it and he prayed about it. So, yeah, but the problem is, is repentance doesn't happen in-house. Repentance happens when you raise your hand and in public and you answer an altar call and you get your heart right before God. So we, we have this, now, now I thought we were going to have to talk about the son. Actually, now we're, we're going to have to talk about the wife. So she had hid his sin. So now I'm trying to bring some kind of understanding, some kind of direction. The problem is, is that in, in the end result of this, the son never got his heart right. He never came back to church. The mom and dad... They got bitter and left the church. The dad was bitter at the mom. The mom is bitter at me because I dared to expose, you know, her precious little prince's sin. And the four other children that were innocent also left the church because they had no choice. An entire family destroyed 
simply because mom was trying to hide her precious little baby's sin. So listen, this is deadly because sin in the home always brings destruction. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but a sin is a reproach to any people. Reproach, that word means shame or disgrace. Acts 5, verses 9 and 10. But then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And, she, and the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So here is the clearest picture. The couple who agreed to hide their own sin, it killed them. It just, listen, it'll destroy your marriage. If you hide sin in the home, it will destroy your marriage. If you conspire with your spouse to hide sin in the home, listen, destruction will come. But more than that, your children will pay the price. You cannot hide their sin without deadly consequences. 2 Samuel 13, 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Watch now, when Ammon had is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Ammon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and violent. So here now, one of David's sons dies because David didn't deal with the sin. But if you read the story to the end, his other son Absalom, who was bitter over the way this happened, this crystallized into rebellion. It brought uh, chaos into the kingdom. More than 20,000 people died. Because, listen, you cannot hide your children's sin without consequences. We read about Eli and his sons. They were judged because Eli did not properly address their sin. 1 Samuel 3, verse 13. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons, his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And the ultimate judgment, they all died because of this. Listen, you cannot hide your children's sin. I have two adult sons. They are... Uh, serving God in the church in Gallup, New Mexico. They're both involved in ministry. Both of them, at different seasons in life, I have put out of ministry. I have judged them and disciplined them for their sin. That is a parent's necessity. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about righteous now, righteousness now. Marriage thrives on righteousness. This is the crucial truth. And so, two very uh, basic categories. One, you must have individual righteousness. Marriage or a successful marriage is built on the character of the two individuals involved. So there must be a personal pursuit of righteousness uh, for the individual. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. So, uh, a crucial note here. Righteousness has nothing to do with self-righteousness. They are not related. They sound similar. They are nothing alike. Here's the problem in marriages. 
is that we very often have self-righteousness without righteousness. Because let's be honest, in every marriage there are people that are good at confessing sin. The problem is, is that you're usually good at confessing your spouse's sin. But you did, Pastor Heimberg said, you need to be righteous. Right? We're really good at that. When I do marriage counseling, I'll tell you one of the things that I say very often, probably three quarters of the times I'm, I'm in marriage counseling, I will say, hold on, just wait a minute. Let's not talk about what you think they do wrong. Let's talk about you. And then, oh, I don't want to talk about me, right? I called this meeting because she's a jerk or he's a dirtbag, right? See, we're really good at pointing out what our spouse has done wrong, but that's self-righteousness. See, righteousness is something on the inside. And the problem is, is that we are very often blinded to the flaws in ourself. It, it is very difficult to see what's wrong with us. Right? If you've ever had a blind spot in life, right? some of you say, no, I never have. I know it's because you're blind to it. That's why you've, you've never seen it. And so, but the problem is, is it's very easy for us to see what's wrong in our spouse, very hard to see what's wrong in us. In other words, stop telling your spouse what they need to do and start being the person that your spouse needs you to be. So this is a huge topic, but let's consider a few important points that will help you. If we're talking about personal righteousness, number one, pursue personal purity. In every possible definition uh, that that might be, purity of morals, purity of intention, purity of mind, purity of action, purity in your words, you need to pursue that in your marriage. Hebrews 12 verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He says pursue, it's a word that means to chase after holiness, right? And the context, he says, if you want peace with people, you better pursue holiness. Some people, they really want peace, but they don't want to do right. So listen, you, you're going to have to start here, pursue personal purity, Number two, you need to build your relationship with God. The closer you get to God, the stronger your marriage can be. That's just a very practical truth. If you want to build a strong marriage, get close to God. You know what? I've had so many spouses after a lesson like this or after marriage counseling or after a sermon, they'll come to me, but pastor... But my husband or my wife, they are this, they're not, they're backslidden, they're unsaved, or they're here, but they're not really, you know, they never read their Bible, he never prays. Listen, this isn't about them. It's about you. You build your relationship with God. Number three, you need to exalt righteousness in the home. That needs to be the atmosphere in the home. The environment where righteous things are exalted and unrighteous things have no place. Your home, uh, biblically defined, should be an extension of the kingdom of God. Where God is exalted and uh, poisonous things are put down or put away. And I will say one final thing on pursuing personal righteousness is you need to allow yourself to be corrected. Because here's the, here's the real issue, right? 
We can talk about all these things, but can anyone correct you? And some people would say, well, of course, Pastor. If you told me I was doing something wrong, I would listen. But see, I don't live with you. Oh, man, y'all don't like where this is going. Is there anyone that you live with that might be able to speak to you? That might be able to tell you you're out of line? Mm. So, is it possible that you could have a discussion and your husband or your wife could say, you know what, we shouldn't talk like that? Or that's wrong. Can someone in your home say, you know what, we're not going to do that. That's, that is not okay. So this, this is really the issue. We can say we're righteous. Being righteous is more than having a big Bible that we thump on occasionally when we're trying to make a point. Being righteous is pursuing right things and being able to be corrected. Listen, the ability to be corrected is a crucial survival skill. So this is personal or individual righteousness. The second major category then, of course, is righteousness within the marriage relationship. This has to be more than I am righteous and you are righteous and we are married. It's more than that. It should be that we are righteous and yet how we are married is righteous. How we interact as married people, the, uh, the material of our relationship, God reigns within our relationship. Malachi 2 verses 14 and 15. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did she not make them, uh, make them one, having to remain of their spirit? And why one? He seek godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal uh, yeah, with the wife of his youth. Treacherously is the word you're looking for there. So there's a lot to unpack here. First, he's using the language of covenant. That's God's view of marriage. Uh, and we, we won't dive into that in, in this lesson. Uh, but a covenant is an unbreakable pact or agreement between two people or two parties. But then he says, let none deal treacherously. That word treacherously means deceitfully or unfaithfully. Now remember... God is talking to his people. He's not speaking to the world. He's talking to uh, his children, his people. And he says, be careful how you interact with your spouse. Do not deal treacherously. Do not deal deceitfully or unfaithfully with them. The crucial issue in marriage is that your interaction with each other must be characterized by and built around Christ and Christian principles. Listen, uh, if you have been saved a long time, maybe that seems like uh, it doesn't need to be said. Listen, that needs to be said. I know a lot of people that they are amazing Christians, and, or they seem to be, but the way they treat each other in the home, they are monsters. I counseled a couple one time that until... I, I really began to get to know them. I, I honestly kind of envied them. They just had that 
fun kind of marriage. They've been married much longer than us. They, you know, and they're always joking. Oh, it was just, it was like, and I thought, man, they're like cool people. I, I just, I wonder what their house is like. It is God. And then when I start counseling them, they're, they're monsters. I mean, I mean, legitimately. I mean, the way they treated each other, they never uh, necessarily crossed that line into what is necessarily sinful behavior. But I'll tell you, they absolutely did not in any way have righteousness reigning in their relationship. They were in this weird competition, uh, this weird, uh, it was just, it, it was bad, man. Listen, it is more than I'm a Christian and you're a Christian and we're married. It's that how we are married exalts righteousness. This is a crucial thing. So some very basic frameworks for righteousness within the marriage relationship I'll give you. Number one, treat each other with respect as to a child of God. I've said this before probably, but as a pastor, there's things you have to say that you never expected you would have to say, right? It's a lot like parenting. Any parents with me? There's things you have to say you didn't realize you'd have to say. Sometimes you're like, no, we have to wear pants at a restaurant. I never thought I would have to say that to my children, but here we are, <laughs> right? As a pastor, I never thought I would have to tell people, you know, you should treat your husband or your wife with respect. Yet here we are. You should treat them not just with respect. And I've heard all these, you know, you know, treat her like she's someone's daughter, right? You know what? How, why do we have to categorize it? Just treat them with respect, right? But, but if we need a category, let's use this one, like God's child. If we're going to interact with our spouse, you talk to your husband, you talk to your wife like they are a child of God. Luke 6, 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And then Zechariah 2, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Okay, this, this is describing something that's sensitive and personal. Your spouse, God really, really loves them, really cares for them. And so when you talk to them, how you treat them, how you interact with them, you ought to consider that. So, this is number one. You treat each other with respect as to a child of God. Number two, and this goes back to last week's lesson, meet each other's needs as an act of service. 1 Samuel 1, verses 3 to 5. This man went up from the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for, the, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And so we talked about this in depth last week. I won't dive back into that. But listen, servanthood, the spirit of servanthood, is a matter of righteousness. That you serve your spouse in, in, in a practical and a meaningful way, we read just now about Elkanah and his wife. Listen, this was a man that was aware and he was diligent in meeting her needs. So, how you meet your spouse's needs, physical, emotionally, spiritually, 
That is an act of righteousness before God. Number three, we protect each other's dignity and build them up. It's very sad when I see spouses treat each other like one of their friends, right? My wife is my best friend, but I don't treat her anything like I treat my friends, okay? My friends, first of all, they're all dudes, <laughs> right? And so I just don't, right? But I've seen so many couples where the spouse, it's just like one of their buddies. Hey, how's it going, right? You know, I'll be back, I'll catch you later, right? Uh, you know, I, I've had people question me because anytime I talk to my wife, I say, I love you. Anytime. If I'm on the phone, if I'm going upstairs and she's downstairs, right? If we're going to bed, if we get up in the morning, I've had, why, why do you always say that? Because I do. It's true. And she's not just one of the bros, right? We don't go play basketball together. Okay, just checking. I don't know if it was, my mic cut out again. You know, this thing cuts out in the most strategic times. Your spouse is not just your uh, roommate, your live-in buddy. They are a precious gift from God. The great gift of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment that God has given you, the fountain of joy, as Proverbs says. Your co-heir in the kingdom, as Peter says. And so you should work to build their dignity, to lift them up. I've seen spouses mocking each other. Right out in another church, one time we're having a fellowship and uh, a big meal at the end. And the, one of the guys came in and, you know, he was a larger guy. He used to joke with me. He'd say, Pastor, where do you get ties that go straight down? Mine all go out like this, you know. It, it wasn't the ties, in case you're figuring, you know, it was... So he was a larger individual, right? Whatever, who cares, right? So we're going through the line, the fellowship, and the wife walks up and pats him on the belly. Hey, tubby, you getting seconds? Right, you eating for two? And I just thought, what? And so, you know, sometimes you have to say something. And so I turned to his wife. I said, excuse me, what if he said that to you? And she's, you know, she did one of those, you know? So then why do you think it's okay to talk to him like that? Come on. You treat your spouse with respect. Build them up. Build them up. There is not a person on the planet, living or deceased, who has ever heard me say a single bad thing about my wife. Ever, anywhere, at any time. Not even my children. As God is my witness, it has never happened. It's never crossed my lips. And I don't say that to build myself up. That's how it should be. That's, that's normal. The, the amount of times I hear spouses say things about their, their spouse, you don't get it. And, and let's, be, let's be real. Can I'm not even asking for permission. I'm doing it anyway. It's most often the ladies. Let's be honest. Oh, you didn't like that. But it's usually ladies who make comments. And they'll say it in front of Because men are taught, just take it, just deal with it. You just roll with it, whatever. And they'll say anything. Did you see how he's dressed? Look, we can't take him anywhere. It's still unrighteous. 
And then you wonder, I wonder why, you know, your first lesson on servanthood, he won't serve me. You don't respect him. So that's not even in my notes, but hey, it's free. What a bargain this morning. (laughs) The fourth framework of righteousness in a marriage relationship is you need to actively involve God in your marriage relationship. It's not just that you're Christians and married. It's that you are married as Christians. Pray for and pray about your spouse. Pray for and about you in your marriage. Pray for wisdom. Pray for favor. Pray that God will help you. I have prayed for the last 23 and a half years about my uh, wife, for my wife, for me, that God would help me, give me wisdom and understanding. You need to actively involve God in your marriage relationship. Okay, I want to stop there for a moment, open for a couple of questions before we move on, because I feel like I've stirred the waters up a little bit. If you've got a question, raise your hand so I can see it. Questions this morning. Tough crowd, huh? Pastor, you had us until you said that last little bit about women. (laughs) Uh, Any questions? Questions, comments this morning? Talking about righteousness in the home. Okay, we'll move on. Don't come and ask me the questions afterwards. Your window has closed. So our bidding has ended on this item. Let's talk finally about the redeeming power of a Christian spouse. I was certain I was going to get this question. Uh, but uh, what if my spouse isn't a Christian? Right? How, so you're talking about righteousness in the home, but I'm not married to a Christian. This is the reality of many homes. One spouse gets saved first. The other one isn't saved yet, or you have one spouse that is backslidden, uh, or any other possible permutation. So what then? How does this apply? How do we apply righteousness in the home with an unsaved spouse? I grew up in a home. uh, My mother was saved. My father was not for many years. And not just unsaved, he was aggressive uh, in his sinfulness. He hated the church. He hated... Uh, our pastor, my, uh, our pastor back in those days was my grandfather, my wife's, uh, my, my, uh, my mother's dad. And so my dad was such a sweet guy. Uh, you know, he was, he was strung out on crystal meth, didn't have a lot of money, but he would save change. He had a change bucket. And as soon as he would get enough coins, he would go to a payphone just to call Pastor Mitchell and cuss him out. Right, like there were times we legitimately did not have food in the home, but there was always money to call the pastor and cuss him out. So, so I'm just saying that to paint the picture. It's not just like my mom was a Christian and my dad wasn't really into it, right? He he was very aggressively unsaved. So, the Bible speaks about when one spouse is saved and one is not. There are four principles you need to lock in on if you are in that situation. Number one is the most important one. Righteousness is required of believers regardless of what other people may do. I get this question very often. Pastor, I'm trying to do this, but 
this person, that person, they did, they said, it doesn't matter. You are still required to be righteous. Right? Now notice I'm using the word righteousness. I'm not saying anything beyond that. I'm not saying you have to stay with abusive people. That has nothing to do with this. But I am saying righteousness is required of believers regardless of the behavior of others. There is no place in Scripture when we are excused from right behavior because people around us are doing wrong, right? If he is a, a monster, if she is the wicked witch of the West, right, it doesn't give you an excuse to respond that way as much as you want to, right? I, my... Uh, you know, my father was, uh, uh, he had a, like almost an anointing, like a, a demonic anointing. He could, he could get anyone. And I remember very little from my childhood, uh, but some of the things I remember, I do remember. And my mom is this tiny, tiny little lady. Uh, she makes Kate look big. And my dad was kind of this hulking, you know. Uh, muscular guy, and I remember him screaming, like spitting, yelling, all this, and, and her just standing there, right? And, and every, you know, I don't know what he was saying. I just have the image of him, this, this vial in every vein sticking out, and she's just standing there. And what she would probably like to do is borrow one of her father's guns and, and I don't know, you, uh, you can figure out. There's many things you can do with that, but because righteousness is still required of believers. We don't get to react. Well, they said this, so then I said, well, yeah, and your mother smells like a warthog, right? You don't have the right. No, don't use that. I'm not, I'm not giving you ammunition. <laughs> Take that off the table. So the point in saying that is all that I've said so far this morning, these principles still apply to you, even if you have an unsaved spouse. Principle number two if you have an unsaved spouse, righteousness and a righteous testimony have the power to convert the unsaved. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the weight, they without a weight may be won by the conduct of their wives. Of course, this applies both ways. A good testimony will help you. A bad testimony will hurt you. Very simply, your conduct as a Christian while your spouse is an unbeliever, for some people, that will be the single biggest deciding factor in whether or not their spouse ever does get saved. If you want your spouse to get saved, and I hope you do, you need to protect your testimony in the home. That's principle number two. Principle number three your children need your righteousness as much as, if not more than, you do. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 to 14. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and, is, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman has, who has a husband who does not believe, is he willing to live with her? Let her not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband otherwise your children would be unclean but now they are holy so now he's talking about uh, we'll address the other issue in a moment but he's talking about the salvation of the children 
You know, uh, I reference, and you've heard me already this morning, but you've heard me before, I've referenced my mother's righteousness when I was young. It's because it made a difference. I didn't see someone who was bitter at God and hated God, and at home she was giving back to my father every bit as bad as she got from him. I saw a woman that was righteous, as far as I could see. And so that testimony made enormous impact on me. Your good testimony has the power to override the bad testimony or the bad example of other people in your children's life. Don't spend your time bad-mouthing the unsaved parent. Don't spend your time uh, stooping down to their level. Give them a home within which they can see Christ in you. And principle number four, if you have an unsaved spouse, God works in mysterious ways. 1 Corinthians seven sixteen. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you, you will save your wife? Okay, now we got to be careful with this scripture because what does it actually say? He says, how do you know, right? He's introducing a question. I am confident. I am a student of the Bible and of doctrine. I am confident he is not saying that if you're saved, then your unsaved spouse gets to go to heaven too. That is not what he's saying. That is not biblically accurate. That doesn't hold any kind of water doctrinally. So that is untrue. The Bible does not say, if you're just a really good Christian, then your unsaved spouse, well, then they'll be saved just by default. However, by uh, uh, introducing the language of the question, he's causing us to consider the supernatural. He's saying, how do you know, essentially, what God is doing? How do you know what God's doing behind the scenes? This is why your testimony matters so much. There is a supernatural dimension uh, that you and I can't understand. We can't process that. We can't see what's happening behind the scenes. But God is always working. And if you will keep these principles, if you will maintain righteousness, if you will maintain your character, if you'll understand your children need your testimony, and then fourth principle, trust God with it. You never know what God will do because God is always working. The point being, stay saved and do right, and God just might surprise you uh, with the ways he can work in your home. All right, I want to stop there and open for questions <clears throat> or comments this morning. Questions or comments we have uh, about Five minutes, I think. Four or five minutes. Okay, Shannon. Pastor, a very interesting one you've raised uh, uh, regarding a spouse being saved and the other one being unsaved. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you've, give, you've, you've just given me clarity on, on something because for the longest of time, I, I, would, I, would, I would have thought that once the spouse is saved and it just keep on you know pressing in that that would have a, an effect on, on the on the other spouse's soul in eternity mm. um, but do you think that there's a spiritual element of protection over the unsaved spouse when the when the safe spouse contains in, in in Christ and in this life yes in the next life no you can there is no way I can be righteous for you right that's impossible I can't even do it for my wife 
I cannot by any level of exertion in any way change eternity for her, right? By my righteousness. In this life, yes, because we've seen that. We've seen, uh, I've heard testimonies of uh, spouses that are, uh, there was a couple in the church in Gallup. The wife was saved, the husband wasn't. So she wanted to tithe, but she didn't have a job. Uh, he did. So uh, I said, well, ask God what he wants you to do. And so she, she felt God wanted her to tithe out of the money that she got for whatever, for groceries or whatever. God began to bless the home. So there's a blessing there. He's still going to hell, right? So th there is, I cannot by my righteousness get another person into heaven, only by them getting saved. Yeah, good. Shuri, I saw you steal the mic. I figured it was you. Okay. I, I, I kind of figured that um, with regards to submission, if my relationship with God is um, on the right path mm. and I am submissive to God, then it would be easier for me to be submissive to my husband and also, you know, trusting him and heeding to him. Because like I once said to you that, Especially as a colored girl, it's not easy to just, you know, say yes to another man, especially if you've been raised in a home where there's no dad mm. and where your mom raised you to be militant and, you know, be strong and don't right. bow to anyone. And, you know, if, and it also has an effect with, with your relationship with God because there's trust issues and all these mm. kind of issues. But if we can be in right standing with God, if we can get that part right first with God, I mm. think then it will play, or it will fall into place for. Uh, blend nicely into our marriages, am I right? Yes, when I yes absolutely. In every category, the closer you are to God, the, the better your marriage. Very good. All right, we're going to break. Service begins in five minutes. Just a note, next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, we have service, but we won't be having adult Bible study. We begin at 10 a.m., so we won't have Bible study next week. Amen. We're going to start in five minutes. <laughs>